We're joined here on Triggered for a special interview with a great American patriot, America First candidate Joe Kent, who's running in the Republican primary to unseat an impeachment voting pro-illegal immigration rhino in Washington State's third congressional district. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on today, Joe. Thanks so much for having me on. So I knew I really wanted to have you on here when I saw you as pretty much one of the first, if not the first, using the phrase America first candidate in your run for Congress. We love that. So tell us what that means to you and, and why you're stepping up to the plate now and running for Congress against this rhino. Absolutely. So America first is, is uh, near and dear and very important to me. Um, I think this is the the current fight that we and the most important fight we're going to have uh, internal to the Republican Party. So America first to me is creating a, a vision for America and creating a vision for what this country should look like in the future, really, of our of our nation. So to me, it's taking all the resources that we're blessed with by divine, divine providence here in America and harnessing them to work for the common uh, American citizen. Um, so I think that we need to restore our manufacturing industry because uh, decades ago we had our manufacturing gutted from this country by establishment um, Republicans and Democrats. The Republicans did it at the altar of the free market, um, and the Democrats did it largely under the mark the uh, the guise of environmentalism, especially out here in the Pacific Northwest, going after our timber industry. But the result has been the same: your average working class American can't uh, graduate high school and go right into a well-paying job that allows them to stay in their, their small town and support a family. So we have this multi-generational scam of uh, college and higher education. So people have to take this enormous amount of student loan debt. They're saddled with that. They have to move out of their small town. The small towns are dying off. Those that are left behind um, are struggling with drug addiction because of the lack of purpose, uh, because of the um, all the industry and all the jobs leaving. And those that do go and take the college debt, they arrive in these big cities. If they follow the rules and they follow all the, the smart advice, they got a job in tech and, the, and those Jobs have largely been shipped overseas as well. The ones that haven't been have been undermined by uh, legal immigration, with the H-1B visa system. So we've essentially created this environment where Gen X on, the millennials and now Gen Z, we're pretty much nothing more than um, Russian serfs that have to work in the gig economy from job to job or take a job in a Amazon warehouse with no real upward mobility. Most people are in debt or incapable of either purchasing a home or really starting a family. So we're being locked down all for the gain of the permanent ruling class, which is a combination of career government politicians and the corporate elites that really benefit from this because they can get cheap labor from overseas. Um, and they can sell the goods back here in America. They can benefit from our tax scheme and they can essentially do nothing but pump critical race theory and other anti-American ideologies into our education system while benefiting from our country. So I, I want to use the America first model to obviously restore manufacturing. I think that that's a, a social issue, a moral obligation that we have, but it's also a national security issue because we have to have the ability to produce the things that we need here. We can't rely on other countries. I hope that COVID woke everyone up to that with our manufacturing chain issues. And then we need to make an immigration system that works for the American people. We need to cut back on um, legal immigration. And basically, if, a, if someone's going to come over here and take a job from an American uh, worker, they shouldn't be able to, ju to just come here and benefit from our system. Same thing with illegal immigration. We actually have to have a border. We're a country. We're a real sovereign country. We have to have border security. I think that's common sense. Anybody who's arguing otherwise, especially on the left, it's clear that they just want access to more cheap labor that they don't have to, they can just exploit essentially and they don't have to care for in the way they would care for an American. So to me, our starting point for America first has to be what benefits the American people. Because if we're not going to have a government that benefits the American people and not just the elite, what's the purpose of having a government? I, I, I think that the nation state is the most powerful thing 
um, in modern history, and we can't uh, succumb to the uh, ideas of the globalists that essentially we just need to be a society that is really just an economy um, with open borders, and then that only benefits the elites on the top. So that to me is, is what America First is. It also involves getting out of our uh, endless wars overseas. Um, so that's, uh, that's a mouthful. That's what America First is to me. Uh, Jamie Herb Butler voting for the impeachment of Trump was what triggered me getting me into the into the race. Um, but I served for a little bit over 20 years in the military, was in the CIA uh, after that, did 11 combat deployments, um, really wanted to go forward and fight for this country because I believed in it. But in my time doing that, I, I really saw that our elites, the permanent ruling class, the establishment, they had no issues lying to the American people about why we were at war. They had no issues sending men and women off to die, to be maimed, to spend trillions of U.S. taxpayer dollars for no real gain, but uh, but for the top elites and the military industrial complex. First person I saw that really spoke truth to power and cut through all that was President Trump. Uh, he uh, recognized that our endless wars were an absolute drain on the society, and he went after the Republican neoconservative establishment on his way to the top. Um, and so I really appreciated that. And then when he got into office, he gave us the authorities that we needed on the military and intelligence community side to take out threats like ISIS, take out threats like Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian terror mastermind. But without getting us into any new wars. Um, when President Trump tried to get us out of wars, that's when we saw the deep state and the establishment turn against him. That was very personal to me because my wife was also a special operator. She was killed fighting ISIS in Syria a month after Trump tried to get our troops out the first time. So despite all the personal grief that I was going through, I, I had to step away. I had to resign from my job in the intelligence community to take care of our two young sons. Um, but I really started speaking out in support of what President Trump was doing because the media and the establishment was trying to paint the picture that he didn't know what he was doing when, in fact, he had gotten it right where so many other so-called adults in the rooms, experts, whatever, they had gotten it wrong for so long. So I uh, worked a little bit on the second Trump campaign in 2020, trying to help him win re-election. And then we all saw what happened. Again, the permanent ruling class, the elites of our society, they ran this election ground game and they painted the picture that Joe Biden had won an overwhelming victory. And then they went about canceling anybody who dared question it. So seeing that, I knew I wanted to do something. Never planned on going into politics. And then Jamie Herrera Butler, the woman who I actually voted for, who's supposed to represent our district, she buckled and she crossed the aisles to vote with the Democrats. And so to me, that was just sort of like a... Um, a call to action. I could either run and, and hide and, and do nothing, or I could throw in my hat in the ring and try and make a difference. And the reason why I'm in this fight is because I, I have two young sons who lost their mother um, fighting for fighting for this country. And soon I'm going to have to look them in the eyes and explain to them that this is the nation that she gave her life for. And right now I can't do that. So I want to want to work to secure it and make it better. Yeah. And I mean, we're, we're really sorry for the loss of your wife. She sounds like a great American. She was willing to lay down her life for this great country. Thank you. A little segue here. I took a piece from your website and it aligns with the theme that we've been discussing. And you just hit on it a little bit that, you know, in the last four years, we saw the permanent governing class, the media, the tech sector align against the Trump movement. Um, and we've, you know, conservative media has taken major hits on big tech censorship and suppression. We've been dealing with that. You know, this self-described cabal's goal was not just to get Trump out, but also to silence and gain submission from every one of his supporters. So, you know, how do we effectively combat that, especially when you have so many, you know, so-called Republicans owned by big tech in the swamp that are fighting against any, you know, effort to stop this? I think first and foremost, Republicans, conservatives, those who are not on the left, we have to realize that this is not going to be a fight that someone else is going to win for us. I love President Trump. 
and President Trump did a lot of great things. The one, the one downside to Trumpism is I think he he lulled a lot of people back into complacency where they thought someone like Trump was just going to fight all the battles for them, and he was trying to. Yep. But we saw in 2020 that Trump can't do it alone. So I, but I think I'm optimistic. I think that we've all been awakened. We realize that we have to take a stand and we have to start fighting against the permanent ruling class. And that's happening all over the country. As far as tech goes, we have to, for, for so many different reasons, we have to win the house and the Senate in, uh, in 22, because we need the house and the Senate to aggressively go after big tuck and break them up. I mean, they are an absolute monopoly. We need to treat the internet like a public utility. We can't, have these these technocrats having this much power over people's free speech and it's in as you guys know it's not just free speech free speech obviously is, is sacred and it's very important we have to fight for it but if you're canceled from big tech right you can't essentially make a living you can't exist in society and especially with the way that the covid uh, vaccine is being weaponized against people and, and the potential of vaccine passports that i think big tech is going to be uh, instrumental in we have to take that power away from these technocrats we absolutely have to do it. I think on the individual level, what people can do is they can really disconnect from mainstream media as much as possible and support the support independent journalism as much as possible, support small, you know, organizations that are trying to seek the truth and actually do the job, tune out MSNBC and, and CNN and essentially the, the, you know, the regime media. Um, but I, I think getting politically active and, and really trying to push through all the censorship by going to all these alternative platforms is something key that people can do, but it's hard, right? It, it's, it's way easier just to stay on Facebook or Twitter, uh, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News. Like it's actually hard to go out and research and find your own independent, independent journalists and, you know, the type of media that is actually putting out the truth. So uh, people just have to realize that uh, this, this is going to be a, this is going to be a fight. There's no easy path to victory. Yep, for sure. Now, uh, Joe, let's let's get local here a little bit. You know, you're you're a Portland guy. You know, you had footage in your campaign video showing that you know the basically the destruction of, of Portland and, and Seattle. Just how damaging is this defund the police movement to the fabric of, of the country? And and what do you make of a uh, next cop that's that's likely going to be the next mayor of New York City? Do you think that's even going to make a difference? And um, basically, you know, you've mentioned critical race theory uh, to start the show. How do you think that plays into this intentional destruction of, of, of our society by these cultural Marxists? So on a local level, for folks who aren't familiar with my district, Washington 3, we are just to the north of Portland. So we're in the, we're the we're southwestern Washington. So we are crammed between Portland to our south and Seattle to our north. Our major population center is Vancouver, which is essentially the suburb of Portland. There's just a river in between. So the third congressional district, everything that happens in Portland directly affects us in uh, in our district. Same thing with Seattle, because we have the I-5 corridor that goes right through the, the heart of our district. So when the lawlessness took over in Portland, we had uh, Antifa and BLM um, march up into our district, into Vancouver, uh, all the way up into some of our rural communities because they felt empowered and emboldened to do so because the police weren't actually able to go after them. The police were doing everything they could, but they weren't being backed up by local government. Jamie Herrera Butler, the woman on primary, she's one of them. She would not say a word as Antifa marched into our district, attacking businesses, attacking private citizens. Um, she said nothing until it was time to cross the aisles and vote with the Democrats to prevent President Trump from deploying the military to actually go and quell the violence. I don't think we necessarily needed to use the military, but you don't take a tool out of the, the leader's toolbox in the middle of a crisis. So that just shows exactly where her loyalties are. I mean, overall, this defund the police movement, which is really, I think, being pushed heavily by uh, critical race theory. So, I, you know, I think years ago, 
probably, you know, going back decades, the, the left really infiltrated the media, they infiltrated the education system and began this slow march through our institutions. They, they took over the, the sense-making organs of our society. And so they've been pushing this, this critical race, something like critical race theory. It just now got a label recently, but this theory that America is systemically racist and, and bad um, for quite a while, I think. And what that's done, it's interesting because I grew up in Portland. Um, when I got done with the military, I, I wanted to move closer to my parents because of my wife, I just lost my wife and wanted help with my kids, but I didn't want to move to Portland. So that's why I moved to the third congressional district because it's, it's conservative. The last bastion of conservative, uh, conservative stronghold really in the Pacific Northwest, but there's, there's deep infiltration in Portland and in Seattle of this, this mindset. That's what's allowed Antifa and BLM to act you know, really with impunity because the people they're either intimidated or they're sympathetic. Like they, they don't want to be labeled as a racist. You know, they don't want to, they, they think that there's actually this fight against systemic racism that's going on as their cities are being burned. So I really think we have to just call it out for what it is. We need, we need to use the tools of the federal government to target Antifa's leaders and just, and to charge them with federal terrorism charges and seize their funds, go after them like we do with organized crime. But then from there, like we have to just be be honest. And any of these cities like Portland, like Seattle, that are going to allow Antifa to fester in those areas, they have to be targeted. We have to we have to make them feel the repercussions for not cleaning up these terrorist organizations. So cutting off federal funding, I think, to cities like Portland and cities like Seattle is the right answer. Hundred percent. Switching gears here a little bit, I know uh, I'm sure you've seen our own Julio Rosas is reporting at, down at the border on the crisis. We're one of the only outlets with anybody even down there. It's totally out of control. You know, if we can retake control of the House and or the Senate, how do we tackle this Biden inflicted gushing wound, I guess you would say, and, and restore security anytime before we can potentially take back the presidency? Because, I mean, even if Congress wants to do something, you know, the executive still is, is enforcing it. You've seen their, you know, roundabout way of lowering border, border enforcement, reinstating catch and release, removing Romania, Mexico. How do you think we tackle that situation? It's going to be hard. I think the best that we can do um, is obviously call it out. The more actual representatives and senators that we have that will call it out is huge. But then we can do everything that we can to, to send federal law enforcement grants down to the border. We should support as much as we possibly can the governors that are willing to deploy their National Guard troops to the border. I mean, if I were president, if I had a magic wand, I would deploy the U.S. military to stop yeah. the crisis and, and build the wall and actually target some of these cartel guys, and, you know, obviously in coordination with the Mexican government. But I think just putting forward actual comprehensive bills and make Biden veto them. You know, like actually put together a plan to fully fund the border wall, to fully uh, deploy the assets down there required to reinstate the remaining Mexico policy and then to use our foreign aid. Foreign aid is another key one. I, I don't think any of these South American countries should be getting a penny of foreign aid until they actually are making an effort to stop the flow of immigrants coming to the north across illegally in, into America. Those I, I think, honestly, though, in until we can retake the executive branch we are going to be in heavy resistance mode and we just need to realize that we need to do everything we can to give resources to the states that are willing to, to fight, to support the governors that are willing, because the governors actually in this case have, have more power to deploy like the national guard and do things like Texas is doing right now, support them. And then just call out the administration. You know, like it, it should not just be, <laughs> it shouldn't just be Julio down there calling it out, you know, in your organization, <laughs> we, we need to get as much attention down there as, as possible. So also I saw on your site that you have Chinese aggression listed as a very important part of your policy. And I love that you have that listed because 
I think it is our gravest threat right now. Um, you echoed something in there that we've been saying for a while now, too. I mean, even going back to last year when uh, COVID was first, you know, escaping China, we were talking about potential lab leaks and, and what we called at the time acts of war with you know, supply hoarding and stuff like that. I love that you use the phrase, we're already at war. Tell us a little more about your ideas on that front. Yeah, so I mean, the Chinese Communist Party, like you don't have to be a, a Chinese expert to, to realize that they're at war with us. They're fighting a total war and they're doing it, you know, large, it's largely economic and it's largely cyber and information as well. Um, and then culture, like, so China has done an amazing job, obviously, since, you know, the year 2000, since we allowed them into the World Trade Organization and had the normalcy of China bill really backed heavily by a Senator Joe Biden. Um, but it was it was bipartisan. They've gobbled up a lot of the world's uh, manufacturing chains because they're willing to enslave their people. So this is a place really where uh, I, I think establishment politicians, especially Republicans, that really always fall back on the 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 altar of the free market. You know, they they have a really hard time saying, hey, why, why did all the uh, manufacturing lines get shipped to China, to China? Well, the elephant in the room there is because China uses slave labor. So it's cheaper to manufacture things there. Everyone wants to look the other way. I think that's something that we need to, to call out and, and seriously address. But China is aggressively at war with us right now. They, if you if you want to take down America and you want to fight America, the worst way to possibly do it is to square off with us in any kind of actual military conflict. So China doesn't want to do that. They're obviously they're ramping up their conventional military capabilities, and there, there's some grandstanding there going on and some showmanship there going on in the Pacific to, to test our resolve at various times. But China's domination of world supply lines, domination of the choke points of the world, the ports. Um, through their one belt, their, their belt and road initiative. That's what we really have to watch. And that's what we really have to counter. And we have to realize they're at war with us and we have to go to war, economic war with them. That's why onshoring our manufacturing is incredibly important. The, the stronger our economy is when we're producing real things, the more secure we will be from Chinese aggression. Because right now we're in the absolute, we're in the absolute worst case scenario um, as far as our economy goes, because we're relying on China, primarily China, but also, you know, Japanese insurance companies, the Gulf Emirates to buy off our debt bonds. We're not producing anything as a country. We continue to add zeros to the end of the uh, Federal Reserve balance sheet and print more money. But at a time and place of China's choosing, they could stop buying our debt bonds. And when yep. they stop buying our debt bonds, challenge our status as prime reserve currency holder by introducing you know, the crypto yuan or, or, or some other alternative forum, um, they could do massive damage that I think would make 2008 look like a walk in the park to our economy. I mean, that's how you take us down without firing a shot. They've also done a great job of you know buying off so much of our elite, co-opting so, so much of our elite. I think we need to economically decouple from China. And, and that's not going to be done by like the free market or the or, or the the marketplace of ideas, as conservatives like to say, to give themselves a, a pass for not doing anything. Yep. This is going to take tough nationalist protectionist trade policies and us getting tough with some of the technocrats and some, most of the technocrats in our country. Totally. Sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's that's a good rundown of the Chinese threat. But let's 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 go back to the domestic threat here, which is our uh, the threat that the that Biden White House um, is putting on our on our civil rights. And of course, I'm talking about the Second Amendment. I'm sure you know about the uh, the ATF and their tweaking of the regulation regarding pistol stabilizing grips, which is going to put 10 to 40 million Americans in legal jeopardy. Um, mm -hmm. Many pro Second Amendment groups are calling this the largest gun confiscation and registration effort in, in, in history. So. What's your stance and, and what do you plan to do in Congress to, to stand up for our, our constitutional right to keep arms? I mean, I'm a 2A 
absolutist. I, I don't think there's any, you know, but or comma after the Second Amendment. I mean, there, it's the Second Amendment is there to keep the tyrannical government in check. So any kind of infringement like the Biden administration is is planning is obviously, I think, unconstitutional. So we need to challenge it in court. We need to challenge it. We need to fight it through the system as much as we possibly can. We need to reward sheriff's departments um, that are creating Second Amendment sanctuaries. So in my district, I have some really good constitutional sheriffs that have done just that. They've created just like a sanctuary city. Um, they've created yeah. a two A sanctuary where they said they will not cooperate with the federal government, with the ATF, with any kind of unconstitutional infringements on our Second Amendment, which I think is awesome. So those those are the types of law enforcement agencies and officers that I think need uh, federal support, federal funding. We can do that through the power of the uh, the grant system, and I think we just need to do everything we can to get people like David Chipman out of the federal government. So it's amazing what Joe <laughs> Biden's doing. He's saying the Second Amendment isn't absolute. He's putting in all these different stipulations that are essentially going to make them law-abiding Americans felons. And then he appoints a guy like David Chipman, who has a record of killing men, women, and children to enforce gun laws in charge of the ATF. So it's like he's trying to he's either trying to rub it in the face of any conservative who's paying attention, or he's trying to send a threat. I mean, I, I essentially take it as a threat. So this is the type of thing that we should not be quiet about whatsoever. We need to take every chance we can to call David Chipman and people from the ATF to the carpet, call the DOJ to the carpet. The Congress has a huge oversight role to play here. Question them, make them say these things out loud and then take them to court, you know, and then support those, uh, those Second Amendment sanctuaries. Yeah, 100 percent. Yeah. On taxes, jobs and the economy. So Bidenomics are very clearly already failing. Uh, you have rocketing inflation, terrible unemployment when there's millions and millions of jobs open, and they're just basically stepping on the throat of an economy that should be roaring. Uh, what's your take on how they're doing things, and, and what would you do to unleash a new era of growth? Really, we, we could run down all the, all the horrible things that Biden's doing, but to me, it's you can't convince me that anyone thinks that this is good. They're obviously trying to do some sort of a crash or some sort of a dra dramatic reset, because I think what COVID showed these uh, authoritarians on the left is that the, the greater the crisis is, the more power you get. So, hey, we locked the country down. We were able to steal the election. We were able to have the largest transfer of wealth from all those independent small businesses who won't do what we say to these massive corporations that we're aligned with. Why not crash the economy and get even more control and get people hooked? We've already got them halfway hooked on universal basic income. Let's let's complete the cycle. So that's that's how I view his economic plans, to be honest with you. Yep. Um, what, we, what we need to do, because I mean, everything we talked about with China makes our manufacturing industry and makes strengthening our economy. It makes it an absolute national security priority. I also think, again, hey, what, what's the purpose of our government? Is it to support an economy or is it to actually support our people? So we need the, the ability to have pro-family policies that are going to allow people to you know, stay in their their town where they're from and work a good, honest job. The manufacturing industry, it's going to create an environment for that, but it's also going to secure our country. So I think we need to streamline through a lot of these massive regulations out here in the Pacific Northwest. Our timber industry has been gutted by the federal government scooping up land and preventing it from being logged. We need to get rid of a lot of those regulations. We need to allow private timber companies to come and make bids. We can, we can ensure that they responsibly log. That's 
not an issue. These timber these timber giants, um, these timber families, they have that figured out. They don't want to go and clear cut the whole forest on one day. They actually have a model for being able to do sustainable forest forestry. And then, but that and and that's the the model I think for the rest of the country too, depending on what their industry is. Same thing with coal. Same thing with the energy sector. Same thing with the steel industry. The textile industry we need to get all that back here and in, in, into the united states and we do that by telling these companies that have outsourced their jobs overseas hey you have a, a time window uh, we need to work out what that time window is i think something like around the you know three to six month mark to get your your production lines back over here and we will make we will make you a great offer you will not pay taxes for x amount of years corporate taxes on on this on your investment um, bringing this industry back here there could even be government assistance infrastructure money for rebuilding some of those factories back here in the states but after that when that window closes you will get tariffed and you will never do business here in america again to include your ceos they don't get to come here and live and benefit from our system while shipping all the labor overseas that's not how it works so um, that would be how the deregulation and then the um, aggressive reonshoring, the wartime footing for manufacturing back here in America, I, I think is absolutely critical. That's how we that's how we start that process from there. I think some Republicans love tax breaks. I think we're overtaxed. I agree with with most tax breaks in general, um, but I think we need to make ones that are more conducive for the American family. So enhance the tax credits for children give women who, who choose to stay home with their children or, or men the ability to uh, not pay taxes and get interest-free loans from the government, interest-free loans that eventually go away. If you, you know, are a good parent and you uh, support your children from, you know, whatever, from birth until they're 18 years old. I, I just think we need to, Republicans have to have a vision. They're, they're usually just the anti-Democrat party. Our vision has to be, how do we support the American family? Yeah, that's spot on. Switching gears a little bit to foreign policy and endless wars, uh, you know, how does your America first ideology fit into what we should do on foreign policy? And I know, obviously, I'm, I'm sure you agree that Biden is doing pretty poorly on the on the diplomacy front, uh, looking very weak. But uh, and I know you agree with ending these endless wars finally. Uh, so how do you feel about the Afghanistan withdrawal that's going on right now? Bar is so low. That honestly, like, I know, I know there's a lot of conservatives that were like, oh, God, we left Bagram in the middle of the night. Like, you know what? I'll take it. Like, yeah. if they just pick up and they leave tomorrow, I'll take it. But I, again, this is a place where I think conservatives and, and I, I hope I know a lot of people in the media are doing this and, and it needs to be pointed out to the American people that President Trump attempted to do this for four years. Yep. And he was thwarted every step of the way and people died because of it. And now we're just like, oh, okay, we're just going to leave Afghanistan. I guess that's okay because Biden says it's okay. And now the mainstream media says it's okay. Like that needs to be pointed out. I'm glad they're leaving. I'm glad they left in the middle of the night. I'm glad they didn't tell the Afghan government because there probably would have been uh, instances of, you know, Afghan soldiers turning their guns on their American counterparts. So it was smart to leave in the middle of the night. Like, you know, they've had 20 years to figure this out. It was rigged from the beginning. Afghanistan's never been anything but a conglomeration of warring tribes controlled by whoever is the strongest tribe or the strongest, you know, um, group of tribes. And that's the Taliban really. So, you know, I'm glad we're, I'm just glad we're, we're finally getting out of Afghanistan. Uh, we, you know, in general, and especially in the middle East, we need to reta retain um, robust intelligence networks so that we know where threats are going to emanate from. And then we just need to go smash those threats. That doesn't mean we need to have a nation building presence, pr uh, presence everywhere. And we don't need to have that uh, capability tied to a government. If the government, if there's a government that wants to help us and support us in that, then that's great. We need partners. 
but we don't need to go and build up and spend years and years and trillions of dollars trying to create a little mini America that looks just like us yep. in these, in these places. It's just not the return on the investment just does not make any sense whatsoever. Again, as far as foreign policy goes, to me, it all goes back really to having a strong, when you have a strong economy at home and we are, we are independent in all of our natural resources here at home, we need less adventures abroad. And so when we do go to wield power abroad, we're always in a position of advantage. So the energy industry is key. When we became energy independent, all the bad actors in the Gulf, and then especially Russia, they they lost a lot of their leverage because the more oil there is in the market, especially US oil, the less their oil is worth money. You know, So there, you, there's a direct correlation between killing off the Keystone pipeline and Vladimir Putin feeling heavily emboldened. A lot of that's because he knows Biden's weak, yeah. but Russia is essentially a gas station with, with, with nuclear weapons. So the more expensive oil is, the more emboldened he is. When we're pumping out oil as well, and we're actually becoming an energy exporter, the less of a commodity he has. And same thing with the Middle East. If you're, if you're the president, I don't care whatever party you're from, if you don't need any oil from the Middle East, if you don't need the Middle East, except for to occasionally find terrorists that are trying to kill you and whack them, you don't really need much from those leaders. So you go into every meeting from a position of advantage. But Joe Biden, because he's he's such a swamp creature, he's deeply invested in some of these, all of these failed ideas. You know, and so he's trying to go back and, and redo his legacy of like, well, okay, the Iran deal is horrible, but maybe we should just try it again. It's all hubris. You know, same thing with the war in Iraq. He would he would advocated for the war in Iraq, and now he won't pull our troops out of there because he's now wed to the second lie of the Iraq war. The first one was WMD. The second one was that, hey, despite the fact that we didn't find a WMD, we did create this great sovereign Iraqi government. Well, that's all BS. The Iranians took that over from day one. ISIS almost ran them over. We had to save them twice. We've spent trillions rebuilding that country. And if at this rate, we'll have to spend another, you know, couple trillion to keep it propped up for the benefit of Iran. So I, again, we strengthen our, we strengthen our economy and we get out of these foreign entanglements. That's the, the main theme. Yep. A hundred percent. And so yeah. last few things I want to hit on here, uh, election integrity, we're very much on the same page with you here, uh, but how do we ensure fair elections going forward so that, you know, they can be trusted? You know, like, so, you know, I tell everybody my number one issue is, uh, is election integrity. And, and it is because, you know, it's funny throughout this whole, my whole district, we have an urban center, but the rest is like fairly rural, but a, a good diversity. It's a big district. Everywhere I go, you know, all the conventional political people would tell me that, hey, in this town, they care about this. In this town, they care about that. And the farmers care about this. As long as I've been in this, which has now been about six months, anybody who comes up to me, the first thing they say to me is what are we going to do about our elections? They stole it in 2020. How are we going to fix that? And yep. that's that's been every event that I've been to. So all the conventional wisdom about that is just out the window. This is what pe- this is what people really care about. So I, I think any politician right now who's not talking about election elections and adjudicating the election of 2020 is not a serious person that we should be listening to. When we get to Congress, we retake it. I do want to have a full congressional hearing where we adjudicate it. We, we lay out all the evidence. We subpoena witnesses. We put people under oath because every check that we were supposed to have on it, they all failed like cowards. Like this, so this is going to be on Congress to prove. I, I the data that right now that's coming out of the audits, I think, is going to be key, and I think that potentially could put us in a position very soon where it's going to be clear that Joe Biden didn't get 270 electoral votes. And then I think we're going to be in one heck of a fight. I wish, I wish I've heard all the people that are like, Oh, but then they're just going to have to reinstate Trump. And like, I hope that's true. And I hope I'm wrong, but I think that's going to get jammed up in the courts. And I think we're just going to have to end up fighting it again. Again, that's why it's so important to take the house and the Senate back. I think we can, if we take the house and the Senate back, I think we can fix this by showing people 
how much fraud there was. And then the people can go to their states. I still think the states should, should control the elections, but then the people can go to their states and demand, you know, actual physical uh, being or having to show ID to get your ballot, having to vote at your assigned polling station and getting the machines out of the process. I think that's key, but I think it has to happen at the state level for 22 Again, this is where there's no easy path to victory. I wish there was something I could say like, hey, if we do this one easy thing in 22, we'll have a secure election. We won't. We have to have patriots come out peacefully and patriotically and let everyone know that we're watching. Like we have to have people going out at at peaceful rallies uh, outside of all these polling stations. Like they got away with it in 2020 because we weren't looking. They even pretty much told us they were going to do this in 2020. And we weren't looking. We were all like, dude, Trump is going to kill Biden because we were looking at the debates and we were looking at the rallies. We were like, this, it's not even close. And who knows? We were probably right. But they snuck it. I mean, they pretty much Ocean Elevens us, you know, like they stole it from the inside, you know, and, and we just weren't paying attention. Exactly. So 22, we just we have to come out. Yeah. yeah, that's what I would say. We just didn't we didn't we failed to imagine the scope of what was going to happen there. That's right. <laughs> Um, and, you know, last time they, they had the advantage. They really only had there was a couple senators, obviously, in Georgia. They, they, they had to cook the books there, too. But they only had to really change one voter in, in 22. It's going to be different. They, they would have to pull it off in 22. They would have to cheat at a pretty high magnitude. And they're going to have way more eyes on them right now. So we just have to make sure that people stay as motivated come November of 22 as they are right now. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, look, look at the Democratic primary, uh, the mayoral primary in New York City. I mean, they had there was 130,000, you know, practice <laughs> ballots that they counted. And then, yeah. you know, de Blasio was like, we need an audit. I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I believe that's an insurrection, sir. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Big time. Um, and you're a supporter of term limits, too. And we can tell you as two people stuck in this terrible swamp, it's needed more than ever. What do you think that could do to help break us out of this cycle of career politicians that we're just like stuck in? I think it's key. I mean, you know, the founders never intended for there to be career politicians. And, you know, wouldn't you know it, the, the guys that make the laws, they've, they've found term limits for pretty much everybody else but themselves. Yep. So, I mean, it, at some point, human nature takes in, it, it takes over. And if you've been in D.C. for any length of time, you can tell that there's a power incentive for becoming like an institutionalist and only caring about furthering the the um, agenda of institutions that are in D.C. and there's a lot of big money there. So to break that cycle, I mean, I think somewhere, you know, somewhere in the four year to eight year mark is, is the right term. If you start hitting the decade mark, like you're a D.C. creature, you just are. And even yeah. if you have the best of intentions, and I think there's some that have been there for quite a while that they, you know, they somehow stay grounded and still do the right thing, but they're the exception and not the rule. And there's no reason. And, and also, I, I think that, that keeps people in the districts very disconnected from Washington, D.C. If the districts and the local parties knew that every four years they had to present a new good candidate, people would be way more engaged, too. Obviously, we know the swamp's dirty and they corrupt people, but we've really, especially on the Republican side, the conservative side, because conservatives are, are they're, they're focused on their family, they're focused on school, they're focused on working. They haven't been thinking about these things. They've just been voting for people that have ours by their names. But if they knew every four years that they were going to have to have a real primary where a bunch of different candidates weighed in, I think people would stay way more engaged. And I, and I, I think that there would be way more of a community effort to pick really good candidates. Um, so, yeah, I think it's absolutely key. You know, I've heard some people say, well, what if you get somebody that's really good and you just want to keep them in? Well, that's fine. They can go run for a different office somewhere. There's nothing wrong with like, I don't know, if I did really, really well and people like me in Congress, 
then, okay, I can come back and I can run for something in the state or I can, I can still stay in somewhere else in government. It's doable. You know, I, I just think that there's major rot if you leave people in the same position over and over again in DC. Oh yeah. And something that's mm-hmm. really unreported or underreported is the amount of Chinese money in Washington, DC. It's oh, yeah. unbelievable. Last thing I wanted to hit on here. What do you make of the, this just, I can't even believe this idea, this truly un-American idea that teams of government employees or officials or whatever have you will be going door to door to now pressure Americans to get vaccinated as part of Biden's new initiative. Yeah, you know, every day the Biden administration just shows us how much further they're willing to go. Um, To me, the whole vaccine issue and and COVID in general really has been turned into this ability for the federal government to see which side of the aisle that you're on and how, how obedient you are. You know, everything with COVID from the masking to like how long you'll lock down individually. It's been a test to see like how long you will do exactly what the government says. And this vaccine is a great way where they can actually put data behind it. Were you willing to go get the vaccine when we told you to do it? You know, I, if people, that are in the at-risk demographics want to go get the vaccine, I think they should. And it's available right now and they can. There's no access issues right now. Um, But the way that they've just gone full pedal to the metal on like, hey, we need everybody that's of school age on to get the vaccine. To me, it just says you want to know exactly who is going to do what you say when you say it. And now they realize that there's a bunch of independent thinking independently thinking people out there now they want to go door to door we've had an issue here in washington state of them putting vaccine clinics in schools um and to me i've always said hey like where's this data stored i've had superintendents tell me that the uh state uh center for disease control is going to give it to the federal center center for disease control i'm like well that to me is a database thinking my military mindset like you can overlay that with the students that got the vaccine, you can probably assume their parents got the vaccine and the ones you didn't, you can probably assume their parents didn't get it. So now you have this whole roster essentially of who will abide by what the regime says. And so now they're gonna go door to door. We, we used to do this when we were doing these stupid counterinsurgency operations, we call them cordon and knock, like where you would literally go and you'd cordon off a, uh, a section of town or, or a neighborhood and then you'd go knock door to door. And we were trying to get a census. We were trying to figure out how many people were there. And we were trying to just talk to them and figure out who was on our side. We didn't have something clever like the vaccine. It was like binary. Will you yeah. take it or will you not take it? We actually had to talk to people, but now the U S government's going to go through and they're going to say like, basically yes or no. Like, do, will you do exactly what I say when I show up to your doorstep or are you going to be a problem? So I, mm-hmm. I, this is very unprecedented and I think pretty scary. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, it's, it's really a, a huge step and also, you know, it raises questions of HIPAA, you know, what, what, who has this medical data? Like, oh, yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. just, Completely unconstitutional. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Anything else you'd like triggered listeners to know about you and your candidacy and, and where can they find your website and Twitter? Yeah, absolutely. So if they go to Joe Kent for Congress.com, I got links to all my social media on there. There's a pretty expanded um, issues tab where they can learn about how I feel about most issues. And if they can, I'd uh, appreciate a, a donation. We're running the campaign right now on uh, all grassroots donations. I put up over $200,000 of my own money into this just to lead by example. I hate asking for money, um, but being able to get the grassroots donations is, is how we're able to, to beat back the establishment and the permanent ruling class. So Joe Kent for Congress.com is how they find all that. Absolutely. Well, we got to keep fighting the good fight. And thanks so much for being so generous with your time, Joe. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for your time, Joe. Thanks for fighting. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Well, there you have it, folks. Oh, drink.
There's one drink. <laughs> we, hope, <laughs> we hope you enjoyed that interview with Joe. We will have more to come uh, over the next coming months with more congressional candidates and congressmen. Tomorrow, hopefully, we will have Congressman Ken Buck on. Well, we're still working on some scheduling issues. He's a busy guy right now with his bills on the Hill fighting big tech. And we also will have our, well, either way, we'll have our normally scheduled episode of Triggered tomorrow on Thursday. So keep an eye out on your feeds and we'll see you then. Later.